Good morning, everyone. Hope that you got some rest last night and enjoyed your breakfast. All right, so this morning we are going to explore some of the unconscious obstacles that might contribute to difficulties in our, in our spiritual practice. And as we have explored in prior discussions, we know that in Buddhist psychology, there is enormous insight offered into the nature of our, our struggles, right? the nature of our difficulties, the nature of the mind and how it operates. But there's less emphasis on why we struggle. Right? The emphasis is really just on the, the nuances of that experience. And so if you read the Abhidharma, if you take time to really explore you know, the, the Buddhist understanding of the mind, you will find an incredibly nuanced discussion of the various fetters, right? the various hindrances that often get in the way of our our potential to feel free and content and relatively well. So for instance, you know, the, the primary fetters are sloth and torpor, right? feeling sluggish, not really feeling energized, not feeling in connection with our practice. As Nancy mentioned last night, anger and ill will I find that distinction helpful because anger arises whenever we're hurt. We're usually also angry, right? Because nobody wants to be hurt. But when it slips into ill will, right? Seeking vengeance, wanting others to suffer, usually we'll also suffer. <laughs> this is the problem, right? And, and Buddhist psychology is entirely focused on what causes suffering and what reduces suffering. So there's no judgment about it. There's no value judgment. It's really just a description of what's likely to happen. Right. Also, sense desires, getting, getting attached to what's exciting, what's pleasurable. Right. As we all know, if there's something going on that is really booing us in some way that is unexpected uh, or new, you know, the mind can, can get gripped. The mind might want to stay there and not actually go into the more settled state of noting. Right. Also, mm, excitement about rituals. I mean, traditionally, this has been a little bit of a, an obstacle when the practice itself and all of the rituals that come with practice start to become our object of focus rather than actually going into our direct experience. Right. And so we, we have a lot of help understanding again, the experience of these obstacles, but what we're going to explore this morning 
are some of the unconscious psychological reasons why we might experience those obstacles. Yeah. And I think both, both perspectives can be so helpful. Right? It's, at least for me, it is really helpful to think about uh, how I get distracted or pulled away. Right? What's, what's the repetitive experience? It's, it's good to, to map this out. Equally helpful to think about the causes. Yeah. Okay, so on that note, I'm going to pull this up. Let's see here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this first unconscious obstacle, right? And as we talked about last night, when we're bringing in a psychotherapeutic perspective to our, our spiritual path, then we are starting to appreciate the, the elements of what we go through that fall outside of conscious awareness, right? And there is an unconscious, as you know, in Buddhist psychology, but it has a much more collective orientation, right? referred to as the storehouse unconscious. It's also a multi-life orientation, whereas the psychodynamic, the psychotherapeutic understanding of the unconscious is, is primarily more focused on one's personal experience and history, right? and how we, we need both segments of the mind in order to navigate life. Equally, we need to try to build some connection, some bridges between the conscious mind and the unconscious. And historically, for I, I have a hunch this has always been true and probably across cultural difference, that one unconscious obstacle is to try to get distance from feelings through our practice. Right? And, and we, we explored that quite a bit in the last retreat. And every Buddhist clinician that I know of has weighed in on this tendency. It makes sense right? because what we feel is so profound, so extreme, so impactful, and at times so very hard to bear. And so I want to suggest this isn't, this isn't just spiritual bypassing. This is just the human condition interacting with spirituality. Right? Interacting with what brings us healing. And that there probably are times when we're practicing where we do touch into what's, what's there in the heart and in the mind. Whatever it is. Right? Longing. Grief. Terror. Joy. Right? The full spectrum. And there probably are other times when 
we are unconsciously hoping that the practice is going to give us relief from the intensity of what's there emotionally. Yeah. And so I, I find myself wanting to soften, you know, soften the concern about spiritual bypassing and just reinforce the respect for how complex the human condition is. And so it's helpful to just notice, right? Are we touching into directly what's there? Are we pulling away from what's there emotionally? And what might it be like to allow our awareness to just meet whatever's happening so that the distancing from feeling becomes more conscious. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. For those of you who have been practicing for a long time and have been in a number of Dharma communities, you know how prevalent this, this obstacle is. It's prevalent with everybody. It's prevalent among our great teachers as well as the newest students. Right? And I say that again just to underscore that it's, it's part of what we go through. It's not actually a, a shortcoming. It's not an indication that we, we need to fundamentally change our practice. We need to sit more, right? It's just an indication that it's very tempting to push strong affect into the unconscious. And because part of our methodology involves dropping the storyline, right, dropping what might actually be a little red flag, that there's something coming up that has power, it can seem like if we're practicing skillfully, then right, we won't actually be feeling too, too intensely. Right? We'll note, and then we'll come back to the breath. Right? But when we start to really appreciate that we have a psyche in addition to spirit, and that they are intimately bound, then we also appreciate that emotion is hard to stay with. And the storyline Right? Often, traditionally, in Theravadan practice, we're encouraged, and I gave you a little bit of kind of a gentle reminder this morning in our practice. You know where the mind is gone. Because we are, right, we are cognitive as well as emotional, there's usually some thinking <laughs> that comes with feeling. It's, it's rare that it's just feeling alone. It's usually strong feeling, very quickly followed by, I should have done something to prevent this. 
this other person is the, the ultimate problem, right? We all have, you know, we all have narratives that are going to come up. And as Jeffrey Rubin mentions in, in his chapter, which, which I included in your packet, one of the problems in traditional guidance for, for meditation in dropping the storyline is that we sometimes we drop it too soon before we have really consciously appreciated there is a narrative here that requires care. Right? There's something that the mind keeps defaulting to that um, is complicated, probably has developed over the course of many years, <laughs> has become central to how we navigate life and we feel like we're surviving but is also getting a little bit too fixed, right? a little too rigid, and needs our curiosity and our respect. Right? So if we bring both a psychodynamic and a Buddhist psychological perspective to our narratives, it's possible to note what we're thinking and to allow our contemplative practice to open the mind a little bit so that we are actually observing without the customary immediate assessment of you know, why we're thinking this, whether or not we should be thinking it. We're thinking it. The narrative is there, right? And then through that more contemplative state where basically the left brain is not working so hard, but the, the medial prefrontal cortex, right, the, the part of the brain that allows us to go into a contemplative state is more online, then actually we get to learn through that more spacious state where we're observing what we're thinking, we're observing what we're feeling. We're not trying to parse it. We're not trying to tamp it down. We're not trying to write a, a term paper about it. We're, right? We're not trying to validate it, but we are, we are in conscious relationship to what's there. This can be enormously illuminating. Right. It's not dissimilar, I mean, for those of you who are in helping professions, you know what it's like when someone comes to you and they are gripped by something they're going through. They also have a lot of powerful judgments about it. You're able to sustain an open mind, right, which becomes contagious. It awakens, potentially, in the person you're working with, a little more openness, a little more spaciousness, right? So that thinking is still possible, feeling is possible, 
but with, without the contraction of the discursive mind. Right. This is why Buddhist clinicians will often say, okay, sure, it's really helpful to quiet the mind. We, I mean, we're also overstimulated at this point. <laughs> Phones, devices, oh, we, we don't get a break anymore, right? We really don't. We, I mean, for those of you, depending on your age, you, you might remember what it was like to just drive or just be on the bus. There was nothing else that you had to do but be on the bus. I remember when I was a kid and a young adult in New York City, I loved taking the bus because it was like a moving temple. We were just quiet. Some people might have been reading a book, right? But most of us were just looking out the window or looking ahead or closing our eyes. Our world has changed, right? So we have much less opportunity to quiet the mind. We do need to do that. But then we need to allow curiosity to come in and be respected, right, in that quiet state. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so this, this next unconscious obstacle, we've We've also touched on right? dropping relationship to, to others under the guise of working through attachments with an unconscious quest for invulnerability, not needing anyone, belonging to everyone as a way to belong to no one in particular. My hunch is this particular obstacle has probably changed quite a bit for many people in the West who are practicing the Dharma because there's, there is more room for you know, our relational reality and, and practice depending on the community that you're in. Right? For the first... 20 years or so, that wasn't the case, right? There really was an emphasis on the mind being ultimate in a way that almost mirrors what Freud originally wanted to suggest, that right, the, the isolated mind has ultimate meaning, right? The way it's impacted by others was not as emphasized as it became over time in clinical communities. Now, the vast majority of clinicians really appreciate everything about the mind is formed in the context of relationship. Right. And so, it is true, the historical Buddha suggested the mind is ultimate. But that sometimes got misinterpreted as meaning that 
we alone can manage the mind, and we don't really need anybody else in order to do that. If we work skillfully enough, right, we can free ourselves from our dependency needs. And of course, the, the teaching of the poison of attachment really reinforced that, that misunderstanding. And for folks who may have had a lot of, a lot of suffering in relationship, which is probably most of us. I mean, it's the rare person who hasn't suffered a great deal in their, their interpersonal relationships. But maybe especially for people who have been extremely traumatized by a needed other and then found the Dharma, it has been tempting to unconsciously hope that our practice could render us no longer in need of others in the same way we once were. Yeah. So again, I want to just see if we can really just garner some appreciation for why that might be and to notice if that is true for us too, even in a fleeting way. Right? Are, are there times when we hope this practice will take us into a state of such equanimity that it, it kind of flattens out our feelings for everybody? We love everybody indiscriminately, which might unconsciously translate into Therefore, they're not going to affect me the way they used to. Therefore, right, I'm not going to need them in the way I, I used to need them. Yeah. I think it was Anthony Storr who said, loving everybody is not the same thing as loving somebody in particular. Right. And, and there have been some really heroic mm. Buddhist teachers who were raised in Buddhist countries who started to acknowledge you know, in the 80s and the 90s that they were noticing they found it easier to love everybody. They found it harder to love particular people. It was really helpful. Right? It's a very humbling admission, right? And, and you might have noticed, some, sometimes it's easy to tap into a generalized sense of compassion and loving kindness when we're on retreat. And then we go home and the person is there with whom we have real difficulty. And then it can reactivate stir, right, this sense of <sighs> I'm really struggling to actively love you right? in the way I was tapping into loving kindness for all beings. Yeah. Okay. So this is connected 
to, to that struggle. Right? Hoping to go into a state of equanimity so that we get distance from grief. Yeah. And again, I'm really struck by the way in which we probably need distance at times. And I have a wonderful mentor who years ago said, because I was, I was grieving a loss, and I said, you know, there are times when I'm, I'm tuning out. I'm numbing out. I'm turning away. And then times when I am in it. And she said, yes, you, you have to come up for air, right? We do. We have to be able to come up for air when we are being pulled into the depths. There need to be experiences where we get to kind of tack back and forth between turning away and turning toward. Right? So again, this is, this is part of being human. This is part of how we cope with loving and losing. So the question is, can we just notice that? Right? Can we notice our own rhythm of turning toward and turning away? And then just to see, is, is that rhythm enough? Is it working? Right? Is there something that could shift? Maybe we actually need more time to come up for air than we're giving ourselves, right? Because sometimes we get so pulled in that it might feel like we're drowning. And then there's guilt about laughing with a friend or numbing out with Netflix, whatever, you know, whatever is giving us a little opportunity to decompress, right? And some, some of us might at times want to stay on the surface or pulled away. And again, we can just notice that to see. It's possible that we come from a family that was loving but also conveyed, you know, when things are hard, it's really good to find a way to, to get over it fast so that you feel better. Right? Lots of people got that message. Right, that it is actually going to be helpful right, to try to feel better as quickly as possible. But as we know, that then often leaves us with too little room for the truth of loss, the truth of our grief. Right? Yeah. So we're going to notice these patterns with, again, without any judgment, almost allowing curiosity to swap out the judgments. Okay. So I'll just touch on a couple of more of these, and then I would love to hear from you. Yeah. So this next obstacle, again, my hunch is this, this is probably not especially applicable 
to you. Uh, I've, I've gotten to know you, some of you better than others, but you strike me as an incredibly conscientious group. Very, very committed to your various endeavors. Historically, this obstacle of hoping that spiritual practice can pull us away from the responsibilities of, of secular life, I think has been more of an issue than it is now. And it's connected to the fantasy of being able to go into a permanent state that is not burdened, that is relatively free of stress. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish, I wish this retreat were longer. Right. I wish that we could, could be here for a month or six months, so that we really could free ourselves from the various chronic stressors that uh, can become too dominant. And so it makes sense that, that for some people there is a, a hope that practice will you know, simply make all of those stressors go away. But something we have learned over time and we're in the, the third or maybe even fourth generation of uh, people practicing the Dharma in the West is understanding that our practice happens off the cushion, right? And this, this is obvious, but I love to just remind folks, because often there is some, some guilt about not being in formal meditation enough. But we're practicing the Dharma potentially every moment when we can tap into some patience with ourselves and with others, when we can stay reflective rather than reactive in the midst of strife, when we can notice our habituated protective defenses and in real time, right, this is the key, in real time, become aware that they have been activated and then see if we can bring back online our, our contemplative state, our noting brain, right, and work with them so that they don't take over. This, this is our practice. Rather than just practicing on retreat or on the cushion, right, and either hoping all of those burdens will go away or reverting back into our defended reactive state when we're dealing with them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.